Hello, and welcome to Heal Podcast. I'm a trauma psychotherapist and your host, Lucy Ritchie. All right. Hi, everybody. I'm so excited. I am meeting with none other than Dr. Claire Goldberg, who is a licensed psychologist and board certified neurofeedback provider, and she's a mentor. She works out of Montclair, New Jersey, and she specializes in working with people who have developmental trauma. She's also a speaker, so she speaks nationally and internationally on this topic of neurofeedback and how neurofeedback can help people who have complex trauma. So it wasn't until Claire met with Seaburn Fisher that her whole career and personal life would change. Seaburn Fisher is the author of Neurofeedback in the Treatment of Developmental Trauma, and Claire worked closely with Seaburn Fisher to better understand how to work with people who have trauma and bringing neurofeedback to them. Claire is also a founding member of the Attuned Neurofeedback International Training Program, where she works with new and seasoned clinicians on teaching them how to use neurofeedback with clients who have trauma. In this episode, we focus a lot on the default mode network, which is the sense of self, which is how we can perceive who we are. And specifically, we focus on how that sense of self gets thwarted from a neuroscientific lens, and we talk about the changes that are happening in the brain. I'm so pleased to welcome Dr. Claire Goldberg. All right, so welcome Claire, Dr. Claire Goldberg. Thank you so much for being here with me today. My pleasure. I'm so happy to be here and thank you for inviting me. Yes, I'm I'm thrilled to have you because you know, you're so knowledgeable on the neuroscience of trauma. There's so many different areas in which that you work and that you can apply neurofeedback for. So I'm just really curious if you can share with us a little bit about what you do and some of your passions now. So I'm a psychologist in private practice in Montclair, New Jersey. And within my practice, I see patients across a wide range, but my focus has become trauma. And I integrate regular therapy with neurofeedback. And it's really changed my practice completely. So on top of my clinical work, I also teach trainings in neurofeedback. I also teach about the neurophysiology of trauma. And I also present nationally and internationally on these topics. I used to run a counseling center um, in, in a college. So I've done many different things. And as you know, therapists we always want to grow and expand our skills. I'm trained in EMDR. I'm trained in somatic experiencing, among other things. And then I started it was quite a while ago now, maybe 12 years ago now. I forget, even more. Many years ago, I joined a study group to study the work of Alan Shaw and his seminal book, Affect Regulation and the Origin of the Self. And in, in that work, he really talks about how our brain and nervous system have developed in the context of our early attachment relationships. And once, it took us two years to get through this book, once I began to understand that, and I began to understand that what I'm seeing in my clinical practice is about the brain, the development of the brain from the very beginning, from our very early relationships. It just shifted how I thought about my work, how I thought about my patients' change and growth where we had successes, but where I feel we often fail. I began to question, is there a better way for me to be doing this work? Is there a way to more directly speak to the brain? Mm. And again, I love talk therapy and I think it's all about the relationship. But I do, I've come to believe that talk therapy can only get you so far, especially with trauma, not just trauma actually, but especially with trauma. I think talk therapy can only get you so far because what we're seeing is really a question of how the nervous system has developed over time and where it's gotten stuck. Mm -hmm. So I started training in neurofeedback and that was great. But again, a lot of the neurofeedback field was about ADD 
And then I spoke to the person I trained with, Mike Cohen, and I said, okay, I need to learn more. And he referred me to Stephen Fisher, who you're probably familiar with. And he said, read her book and reach out to her. So I read her book and I called her straight away and I've been working with Seaburn ever since. You study neurophysiology and you teach on that and you're offering neurofeedback to treat trauma. So, you know, I'm in Toronto, Canada. This is not something that is as known, I guess, as in the US and even in the US, it, it could be more known, um, neurofeedback. And so if you can just share a little bit of what does it look like to treat trauma through neurofeedback? So if we think about our, our medical model, we think about the chemical system, typically right now, right? We think about the chemical system, we think about medication, we're going to shift our attention to the electrical system, because we are actually electrochemical beings, the brain really um, is based on oscillatory rhythms, electrical rhythms and patterns that really are the foundation of our being. And the brain is really a sort of self-organizing dynamic system that sort of strives to have stability and flexibility. Mm -hmm. Our neuroplasticity, our ability to change lies in this electrical system. And our electrical system is very sensitive to our environment. So the influence of our environment really impact these oscillatory patterns that we have. When we think about neurofeedback, we're thinking about those oscillatory patterns what they look like, and how can we give the brain feedback about those patterns so that the brain can learn to shift those patterns. So with early trauma, often you're gonna have a system that is filled with fear. It's gonna be a very fear-based system that has developed to protect itself from the dangers that surrounds it, right? The nervous mm -hmm. system, is that's how it's gonna be established. But then over time, that pattern isn't necessarily helpful anymore. But the system is stuck in these fear patterns and these patterns lie below our conscious awareness, right? You can't talk yourself out of those fear patterns. Those fear centers in the brain are deep, deep, deep in the limbic system and even in the brainstem. The work with Frank Corrigan now, we're looking more at the brainstem. They are not um, amenable to having a conversation with you, right? Mm -hmm. if, if they could, talk therapy would be amazing, right? We could just tell the brain to calm down and would be done. Mm -hmm. But it really lies below that conscious awareness. So we have to figure out how can we help calm down this, these fear-driven brains. If you think about it in the arousal model, right? Often you have when there is fear and trauma, you have a nervous system that is over-aroused. It's sort of stuck. The on switch is stuck on. There's a lot of hypervigilance, right? And um, there's a lot of terror. It's a brain in terms of neurophysiology, then we can look at brain structures that the brain structures have developed in the context of trauma. So for example, in terms of structures, we know the amygdala, which is part of the limbic system, is that where the fear, where the fear pattern generated from, so to speak. The amygdala has a lot more neurons, right? So the, the amygdala is hypersensitive to being triggered. We know, for example, that the area that holds our memories, the hippocampus, often has less neurons, right? It's smaller, it's attenuated. So that's when we work people with trauma. They don't even remember things. Part of it is because the hippocampus is smaller. We don't really know where those memories are, but we know that it kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. We know if you're exposed to um, verbal abuse, that's going to impact your auditory cortex. We know if you witness domestic violence, it has an impact on your visual cortex. So these are all things in the brain that we can now understand, right? Mm -hmm, so when you mm -hmm. get to understand this, even just explaining the psychoeducation patients is so validating. 
Lucy, it's so validating for people. Just explain this. It's not your fault. Of course, this is mm-hmm. how your brain got set up. Now let's help you with it. But it's mm-hmm. not your fault. Yeah, exactly. So you have all these, these brain structures that are impacted by trauma. And then you have these um, brain frequencies that are impacted by trauma. So we know when we work with developmental trauma, we often see um, a high amplitude. That means a lot of the slower brain frequencies. Which, by the way, when somebody has a, a history of a, of a TBI, a brain injury, you also see a lot of um, low frequencies. So again, the brain is a self-organizing system. It wants to be creative. It wants to be able to be flexible. Mm-hmm. But instead, we see a rigid system, and we also see instabilities. So when you sort of think about somebody's emotional ability, we think about it in terms of the brain is just very unstable. It goes back and forth. It can't quite figure out where it wants to be in terms of arousal. It can't quite figure out what the pattern is that it wants to have. So it's all over the place. So let's say someone is listening and they have trauma and they're really curious about neurofeedback. Is there something that you would recommend in terms of the type of neurofeedback? So for example, they're, you know, like infralow or... That's a great Pardon? question. Yes, I love that question. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know every brain is different. So it's like, how do we know? Yes. But if it's developmental trauma, generally. So there's, mm-hmm. so, you know, there's so many different ways to work with neurofeedback. And I use all kinds of different systems, right? Mm-hmm. So obviously I work with the arousal model. I work with Dr. Coburn. I do four channel coherence training. Mm-hmm. I'm now working with InfraLow as well. So I try everything because I just think whatever's going to work, if it works, then I, I want to try it out and see. Yeah. The key I don't do regular Z-score training. I think with, with trauma, brains are so sensitive. You don't really want to push somebody towards it. You don't want to push them towards the norm. I don't think that's really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, so you really want somebody who's very sensitive to early trauma, to the sensitivity of the brains that are in front of us. Somebody that has good therapeutic skills. There's always, you know, neurofeedback, I think is always in the context of a therapeutic therapeutic relationship. So you don't want to go to some kind of factory, you know, neurofeedback factory place. Um, you know I've had people come to me who have gone through that and it's been you know pretty disastrous for them mm-hmm. so you want to be very mindful of who your practitioner is what their training is where they've trained and how they understand neurofeedback in the context of trauma yeah you know what's their model who they've trained with who they've worked with and I think if you, if you sort of ask those those questions then you can find yourself in in, in safe hands yeah yeah wonderful thank you for sharing that um you know I'll just do a little disclosure because I remembered my, when I was starting, and I think I was telling you um, through emails, it was very frustrating for me doing neurofeedback. I actually dreaded it, and I, I was eager to do it, and I had it on my, you know, I was doing, you know, starting at CZ. So for those who are listening and don't know, that's sort of the, like the top of the scalp, but in the middle. Um, and for me, it it just made me really agitated. And mm. super angry. And I'm not, you know, like I, I'm a trauma therapist. Let's all put our, you know, I let's add the things up. Of course, I've gone through my own trauma. Um, done a lot, a lot of work. I've studied a lot. I'm in my doctorate and education has helped me a lot and also psychotherapy. But like you, I'm very determined and curious and I have this sort of grit to try many different things. And I did read actually C. Burns book, which is fantastic. I have it right here. Oh, perfect. Yes. Neurofeedback in the treatment of developmental trauma. Yes. So definitely I want to try, you know, she talks a lot about FPO2 and um, these things, but I'm taking my time 
and really, you know, being careful because my brain is very sensitive. That's what my mentor told me. So um, it makes sense. And I appreciate that um, you noted that. And I want to also share that it is, it's true, right? Yes. And, you know, as therapists, we all experiment on ourselves with neurofeedback. So I have done, I've put myself to sleep for, for a weekend. I've given myself, constantly given myself migraines um, in, in the pursuit, right, of our learning and our growth. But we see how powerful a tool this is, right? You also get to experience what a powerful tool it is. And what I say in terms of, you know, an experience like yours that you had, I'll say we're always in conversation with the brain. This is a conversation. Mm -hmm. I said, we're not computers. Whoever tells you we are, we are not computers. As much as we want to be, we are not computers. And so we can't always predict what the brain is going to do. We just can't. Even though we think it might do something, we can have a best guess, but mm -hmm. it's a conversation. And if the brain doesn't like it, it's telling you something. So then we yeah. listen and we engage in the conversation and we say, okay, I heard you. You didn't like that at all. Let's see if we can, if you like this better. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well said. And I know that you've shifted a little bit from meditation, but we chat a little bit before we started recording about why it's hard for uh, our clients who have trauma to meditate. And a lot, I see this all the time where clients are like, I just can't do it. And, you know, then they feel this shame and it sort of reinforces their symptoms. And, you know, it, it becomes kind of a cycle of even them trying and, and they just can't, quote unquote. So I was wondering if you can speak to that a little bit, because I know that you studied neuromeditation, which to me is really fascinating. Um, I think that's so well said, Lucy. Like the shame that comes with, I just can't do it. Everyone says, well, just meditate and you'll be fine. And the brain, if you have this overactive brain, right, we're talking about over arousal in the nervous system, it's a brain thing, right? It's not a conscious thing. It's a brain thing. So then to tell that brain, well, now you just have to kind of calm down. If they could, they would. They wouldn't be in our office if they could just calm down. It's a brain thing. And so, of course, they can't just calm down. Of course, they can't just sit there and meditate. Mm -hmm. In terms of meditation, let's talk about that just briefly. There are different forms of meditation, and different forms of meditation correlate with different brain frequencies and different areas of the brain. So, you know, I studied with Jeff Tarrant and he breaks down four different types of meditation. That's like focus meditation, open heart, loving kindness. And I always forget one when I do this, but they're all correlated with different brainwave patterns that we want to work with. So you can look at, and I think he has it on, on his website. You can look, you can sort of do a little mini test or whatever, a little questionnaire and figure out sort of where you might benefit from training first. Typically, a focus meditation is where we're going to start unless somebody is an overthinker. And then we don't really, because you're thinking if you're doing a focused meditation, think about neurofeedback, think about the brain, you're going to be training, right? A higher frequency for mm -hmm. focus. If you're doing, I don't know, mindfulness, mindfulness is kind of a tricky one because it's sort of what it means varies in the popular culture. You know, we're looking at gamma, there are different frequencies that we're looking at that we're training depending on what somebody needs. But in terms of trauma, I don't worry about meditation as much unless somebody wants me to. And then I will go through the screening and we'll talk about meditation practices that might work for their brain where they are in this moment in time. As you know, with neurofeedback, you know, one of the biggest protocols that's been studied is alpha theta, mm -hmm. right? Which mm -hmm. is a form of meditation, right? It's, it's that alpha theta, that crossover state. Um, so that is, and that's used a lot for trauma. As you know, it's used a lot with addiction, but it really is about processing trauma, but it's definitely you know, a, a meditative state. Yeah. It brings us down to that subconscious part. The theta frequency, that's where theta is. Just to remind mm -hmm. everybody, we have different brain frequencies and different brain frequencies are correlated with different states. And we have these really, really slow brain frequencies where we're fast asleep. 
And then you have this, this the next stage, the theta, which is that kind of in between, you know, waking and sleep, you know, when you're kind of falling asleep and you have that brilliant idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Every morning you can't remember what it was, you're probably in theta. Yeah. And then we have alpha, which is that kind of calm, focused state, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so alpha theta kind of takes you between alpha and theta. Mm-hmm. But in terms of meditation, it is a form of meditation, but it's also a very well-studied neurofeedback protocol that we use with trauma and with addiction. And so the, just because you mentioned alpha theta, that's one thing that I'm really interested in. And that's what, you know, because you studied with Ruth, uh, Ruth Lanius, she does, she changed something with alpha theta. She'll... Okay. So let's talk a little bit about uh, brain networks mm-hmm. and then I'll take you into Ruth. You'll see okay. Sounds good. So we're an electrical system and our brain has different areas. When we're doing different things, discrete parts of the brain are functionally connected through the electrical system. So we have all these networks. So one of the main networks we had is called the D4 mode network. Mm-hmm. And this network sort of connects the front of our brain to kind of the, the back of our brain. This is the network that is really our sense of ourself. Typically, you know, some you know somebody, you know, without trauma, that network comes online when we're just kind of sitting there quietly. We're not doing anything. We're not focused externally sort of a little bit internally focused about ourselves. And it's really this network that allows us to have a sense of ourselves rooted in the past, living in the present, and being able to anticipate and plan for the future. So our autobiographical memory is. And this network starts to come online, you know, from infancy, around one year old, it starts to kind of connect. It's not fully connected until we're 26, which is why adolescents make poor decisions, because the front part of the brain that inhibits our actions isn't fully connected up here to inhibit the other parts of our brain. It's a really important network. This is really Mm -hmm. our sense of ourselves. Mm -hmm. So Ruth Lanius and her team, what they found was that when there's a history of early trauma, that network is not hooked up. Yeah. And I don't know if you've seen that paper, but everybody I think should see this paper. Because the images are stunning. If pictures can paint a thousand words, you see a healthy default mode network with all the nice yellow areas lit up. And then you see a brain, somebody with a history of trauma, and only one spot is lit up. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean in terms of our sense of self when there's a history of trauma? What does that mean our capacity to feel rooted, to feel grounded, to be able to live in the present, to plan for our future when this major network isn't connected? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if we're thinking about the same paper, because what what's coming to my mind from what you're saying is there's sort of this salience network that basically it's assessing what's going on. And then when it comes into the brain, if it's familiar, it's going to go to default. If it's not familiar, it's going to go to prefrontal cortex, figure out what it is, and then go ahead and assess, act. But in this case, if there's trauma, what happens is it becomes self-referential. So it's almost like I'm looking at myself in a way that I believe someone else might be perceiving me and then behaving in a way that I feel will keep me safe with them. So if I'm on task, for example, then I'm okay because I'm not focused on any of that. But when I'm off task, then mm-hmm. I'm starting to hypothesize what are others thinking and and so forth. It's not so much thinking about my past, my present, my future. Mm-hmm. But being very stuck in the moment, being very stuck, very um, stimulus bound, so to speak, right? Yeah. Um, the salience network is another major network. So the salience network is a network that just 
takes in all incoming information, both from the body and from the environment, and then decides, like you're saying, what of this information is salient? Mm -hmm. How should I act? And that network also is severely compromised when there's trauma. And the third network is the executive function network that we think about, which is this, this, this network that allows us to have judgment, plan for the future, think before we act, right? our cognitive abilities. And again, that's also very compromised when there's trauma. You know, the mm-hmm. salience network is sort of, and the salience network is kind of like the fulcrum, like where should things go? I think that's what you're saying is sort of the fulcrum network. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we do, I'm sure you see with trauma, what's so striking with the salience network, and I see this all the time, is when there's no sense of you being embodied, you can't really read any of these cues. These cues make no sense and they're misinterpreted. The other thing that they found with the default mode network is that it, so it doesn't come online when you're just sitting calmly doing nothing when there's trauma, but it does come online under threat. So for therapists, what does this mean when we see our patients who constantly engage in dangerous behaviors? And if you begin to understand that the sense of self maybe only comes online under danger, mm-hmm. some of those behaviors begin to make more sense. And again, in terms of psychoeducation, it can be really helpful to share that with our patients. So back to Ruth, she uses alpha, what we call the posterior dominant rhythm this sort of basic self rhythm. This is the that kind of idling rhythm that we all have. Sort of the background noise is around ten hertz. This idling rhythm. Mm-hmm. So it's the sort of self rhythm you might you might say. So what Ruth has found in her research is that if you train alpha down with trauma, you'll find that the alpha, the amount of alpha that we make, is either too much or too little. It's not regulated. So what she has found is if you train alpha down, so you teach somebody just to make less, their brain to make less alpha, if they are somebody that doesn't have enough alpha because the brain is a self-regulatory system, if you train it down, the brain kind of adjusts and brings the alpha to where it should be. Mm-hmm. If somebody has too much alpha and you train alpha down, Alpha stays down. So she trains Alpha down, and because she has access to an fMRI machine, she's in Canada, and she has great research resources. They found that even after one session of Alpha down, the default mode network comes online. Wow. You have to keep training to teach the brain to keep doing that, but one session of Alpha down, so think how simple that is, right? There's one sensor. It's not a complicated protocol for neurofeedback providers out there. It's not that hard to do. Mm-hmm. you're just teaching the brain to change its patterns to change its rhythm and this network that allows us to have a sense of ourself begins to come online mm-hmm. and this is what we're talking about in terms of having conversations with the brain right this is something you can't teach somebody this in a therapy session mm-hmm. in a conversation you can't teach that through no fault of the therapist or the patient it's nobody's fault it's just this lies beyond that level of of thinking this is mm-hmm. deeper than the prefrontal cortex right it's faster than our conscious language abilities can can speak at can communicate in mm-hmm. it's very unconscious yeah. um and you're talking about the sense of self doesn't come online often with trauma unless there's fear and i find that to be so fascinating because when we look at kids you know who grew up in trauma that's how they know themselves that's you know, what they understood themselves as. And so when there's absence of fear, that can feel kind of threatening in its own way. And so it really makes sense to me looking at it through the default mode network and it gives us a place to see what we're working with. 
And that's why I just love neurofeedback and why I'm investing so much in neurofeedback for my practice. Because as Seaburn said, there's three ways to approach trauma and all three need to be together. And, you know, you're doing all three of them. And I like to think I am too, which is somatic. You need to do somatic work. You need to do neurofeedback and you need to do psychotherapy. And of course, as time moves on, neurofeedback won't be necessary, necessary, excuse me. Psychotherapy probably won't be necessary. Movement, I think will always be necessary. But yeah, I think it's just such a, a fascinating topic and so much more to discover. Um, because I'm so passionate about this, I'm making this my dissertation, the the default mode network. So I appreciate that. <laughs> wonderful. How wonderful. Yeah. So this is something that I'm just very interested in. And a lot of the listeners, you know, who have complex trauma or who are working with people who have complex trauma, this is an area that is of really big interest to them. So I think this can help alleviate that sense that there's something wrong with them and kind of getting to the root of what's really going on. So I really appreciate that. Um, and so I just wanted to invite you to share anything, if you had any thoughts, any ideas that you wanted to share with our listeners before we go. Well, I always encourage people not to give up. Mm -hmm. Don't give up, you know, neurofeedback is hard. You know, we're working hard to train more people. We're working to really help train therapists in our junior feedback model for trauma. We really encourage people to not to give up because they know how difficult it is. You know, it's really going to be heartbreaking to try to find the right therapist. I do think that um, neurofeedback needs to be in the context of an attuned therapeutic relationship. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, that is always going to be a key piece to the holding space for neurofeedback. Mm -hmm. And as I did mention, I am also now working with Seaburn myself and a few other people very closely with now Frank Corrigan around deep brain reorienting. Mm -hmm. And so always working to add, to improve, to help healing in, in the, the most effective way that we can and the most efficient way that we can. The mm -hmm. level of, of change has been pretty incredible when we combine DBR and neurofeedback. Mm -hmm. Nice. Thank you for sharing that. It sounds like it's working with shock. It's working with attachment shock, right? So remember we started yeah. our, our today talking about how our brain and nervous system gets set up in the context of our early relationships. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so we're really looking at attachment shock that gets held in the brainstem. So that now we're going deeper than the amygdala, right? We're going deeper than the limbic system. The attachment shock is held in the brainstem and that yeah. sets up everything else. So can we get to that attachment shock? And again, this is processing. So this doesn't mean you have to sit and talk about all of your trauma, right? This is a processing at this much deeper pre-verbal level. I really appreciate all of your knowledge and sharing so much with us today. My pleasure. It's lovely to meet you and thank you for inviting me. Heal Podcast is an educational platform that aims to depathologize trauma through meaningful conversations. None of the information provided is intended to replace conventional therapy and all listeners are invited to seek their own professional services for their unique concerns. We are thrilled to have our listeners as part of our growing community. We strive to make our conversations as educational as possible and, of course, interruption-free, which is why we do not include advertisements. So with that, I ask that you please subscribe to Heal Podcast, like and share it with your friends, and of course, with your social media to support the growth of this channel. I'd love to stay in touch with you, so come follow me on Instagram at 
Heal Psychotherapy. You can follow me on YouTube and you can also come visit us at healpodcast.com where we do give away lots of free resources, you can get a free ebook, and you can also submit a question for our next guest. Last but not least, I'd like to take a moment to thank Jordan Bernard for creating the music for Heal Podcast. And of course, I'd like to thank you so much for being here. And as always, I'm truly rooting for you.